Washington. I'm Joe Carter, one of the pastors for our location. It's a pleasure to be with you today as we gather together and encounter God through his word. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 32 through 42 today. And this is the famous passage about the trial Jesus faces in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he goes to the cross. And as we'll see in this passage, Jesus and the disciples don't seem to be, have the same perspective about what's going on. And have you ever considered how much life depends on your perspective? Much of what you think depends on whether you're interpreting a situation correctly. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. Imagine a curious group of aliens decides to, to visit our planet. And they land here in the courthouse district of Arlington. And they come up the side of this building here, and they see two doors. And if they had taken the left door, they would have come in our church. But instead, they took the right door, which led them into a gym. And inside, they see these people lifting heavy objects, and their faces are contorted with anguish. <laughs> and their arms and legs are shaking, and sweat's just pouring down their body. And some are even gasping for air, or somebody's yelling at them to keep going. <laughs> and to these aliens, this looks like a form of torture. They wonder what these poor people did to deserve such punishment. And then they're shocked to learn that these people chose this. They choose to do this almost every day. What the aliens don't see is the whole picture. They don't have the proper perspective. They don't understand that the purpose is not the suffering. The purpose is the outcome of the suffering. They don't see the strength being built, the endurance being developed, the health being maintained, and the confidence being gained. In a way, we're much like these aliens when it comes to trials and temptations in life. And trials and temptations often look senseless and like unnecessary suffering. All we see is that they are painful, exhausting, and seemingly never-ending. But just as with lifting weights, there is a purpose behind these trials. In the Bible, a trial is a testing of our faith. It's a moment God uses to, for our growth to draw us closer to him. And trials come in many forms, but they typically come outside of us. Often they are things like illness or grief or heartbreak. Things that are either caused by sin or caused because we live in a fallen world. Yet because God is sovereign, he can and he does use these trials for our good. Now, in contrast to the external nature of trials, temptations are usually internal. They're things that entice our hearts to sin against God, to go against God's will. And they often desire for good things like love or sex or material things that are good in themselves, but the way we go about them is wrong, and they lead us away from God's will. And temptations do not come from God. God does not tempt anybody to sin. Instead, they come from our own sinful hearts or from the demonic forces that want to lead us astray. But God allows us to go through trials, not because he wants to harm us, but to strengthen us, just as the weightlifters in the gym. And just as lifting weights breaks down the muscle so it can grow stronger, Trials break down our self-reliance so we can depend more on God. But for a trial to build us up, we have to pass the test. Every trial and temptation is pass or fail. We pass the test or we fail the test every time. So we need a strategy to ensure that we're going to pass and then we're going to pass every trial we face in the right way. And fortunately for us, Jesus gives us 
just such a strategy in the passage we're going to look at today. And while almost all trials and temptations are unique in their own way, they're all similar enough that we can apply the same basic strategy to you so that we can deal with any trial that we're going to face. So let's find out what that method is. But before we do that, let me pray for our time together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to come together today to worship you. As we examine your holy word, we ask you to open our eyes and soften our hearts so that we can see the beauty and truth within your scripture. Illuminate this passage so that we might better understand what you want us to know and help us to obey all the commands that we find within the text. In your son's holy name we pray. Amen. So the past few months, we've been studying the book of Mark, and we've been covering the last few week of Jesus' life. And because the pace we've been going, it's easy to get disconnected from the events that are actually going on in the text. We started talking about Jesus' final week back in April, when Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey. And we, we're now just three, we're now in June, and we're only covered to the events that come on in Wednesday. So on that period of time, from, from Sunday to Wednesday, there's been a lot going on. First, the chief priests and the scribes plotted to kill Jesus. And then Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to die. And we learn that Judas is betraying Jesus to the religious leaders. And then the disciples share a Passover feast with Jesus. And during that feast, he tells them that Peter, his chief disciple, is going to deny him three times. And that all the other disciples are going to abandon him. And all this has built up a sense of foreboding and anxiety. There's a lot of talk in this chapter about abandonment and betrayal. And this is where we are in the narrative as we move into the next scene, which takes place in a garden called Gethsemane. So let's look at verses 40, 32 through 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my sorrow, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass for him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. and They did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So this scene is very simple. Jesus and his disciples go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he tells them to sit and wait. He then has three of his disciples come along with him to a little bit further, and he assigns them the task of watching and praying. And then Jesus goes on by himself, and he prays. And then an hour later, he comes back, and he finds Peter, James, and John asleep. And he wakes them up and tells them to pray and watch. And then he goes off and prays again. Then he comes back again and finds them sleeping. And he wakes them up again and tells them to pray and watch. And then he goes back again. And he comes back a third time. And they're still sleeping. And he wakes them up and he tells them, now it's time. The betrayer is coming to the garden. 
And this is all rather straightforward. Yet when we grasp what is going on, we realize this is one of the most heartbreaking scenes in all of history. It's no overstatement to say that the trial and temptation that Jesus is going through is the greatest that has ever occurred in the universe. However, at the time, the disciples didn't understand what was going on. From their perspective, it's just another day with Jesus. It's just another night in the garden where they've gone frequently. But Jesus had a different perspective on what was going on. So let's look at this from the perspective of Jesus. In verse 34, Jesus says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And what he's saying is his grief and sorrow is so crushing that it feels like it's going to kill him. To get a sense of what he's feeling. Imagine you're walking through the desert and all of a sudden the solid ground gives way to quicksand. The next thing you know, you're up to your feet and you're struggling to try to get out of this. But the more you struggle, the more you get into the pit. And then it's up around your waist. And then it's up around your chest. And it's so constraining. It makes it difficult to breathe. You feel like it's going to crush you. The sorrow and despair that Jesus is feeling is like that. He feels like the sorrow and grief are so constraining, it's going to crush him and take away his final breath. So that's what he's feeling. But what is the reason he's feeling such sorrow and grief? Is it because he's going to his death? If so, this would be kind of a strange reaction. Just last week, Pastor David talked about the Protestant martyrs who were burned at the stake and drowned. And yet, they still had a sense of composure about them when they were going to their death. Some even sang songs of praise to God while they were being killed. Did those men and women have more courage than Jesus? Is Jesus afraid because he's a coward? No, he isn't. Now, there's no doubt that Jesus did have some anxiety about the torture he would soon endure. He was about to go to a crucifixion, which was the most brutal form of execution ever devised. Yet what made him so sorrowful wasn't the cross. What made him sorrowful was the cup. In verse 36, he prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. The cup refers to God's wrath. In the Psalms, and in the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah, the cup signified the wrath of God towards sin and the punishment for sin. And the wrath of God, as the theologian John Stott said, is the Father's steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. And we tend not to appreciate God's wrath as much as we should. And the obvious reason we don't appreciate it is because wrath is directed at sin and we are sinners. The wrath was directed at us until Jesus turned it away. But even Christians, we fail to appreciate the depths and beauty of God's wrath. Yet we should be grateful for God's wrath because we have an innate sense of justice. We all want to see justice, injustice punished, injustice done. And sin is the gravest injustice. I think about the last time you got angry about sin or injustice. Maybe it's because you saw somebody who was accused falsely. Or maybe you heard about some horrific crime that somebody got away with. And it stirred within you a sense of righteous anger. 
Now think of all the times you felt like that in your life. Now add to that all the times everybody in this room has felt like that in their life. Now take all that anger at sin that every human has ever felt of all time and add that together. If you added all those feelings of righteous anger together, it would be like a drop of water compared to the ocean of God's wrath. That's how much God hates sin. You think you hate sin and injustice? God hates it more than every human alive has ever hated it. And the ocean of wrath is in God's cup. And in Mark 14, that cup is about to be poured out in Jesus. Ezekiel 7, 8 prophesied, I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you. And Jesus is aware of all that wrath. All of that anger towards sin is going to be poured on him at the cross. The cross is painful, but the cup is almost unendurable. The cup is why Jesus is afraid. So Jesus does what any reasonable person would do. He asked the father to let him get off from the suffering. Again, as we see in verse 36, he says, Abba, father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. It's sometimes said that Abba was a, a term, Aramaic term for daddy, but that's not really true. It simply means father or one's father. And Jesus is asking his own father to allow him, if it's possible, to avoid having to suffer the father's wrath. He's asking if there is any other way to fulfill God's will that doesn't require him to undergo the terrible burden of suffering the wrath that is due to sin. And just as we can better understand God's wrath when we understand the scale of it, we can better understand what Jesus is going through when we consider the scale of what he's asked to endure. So think about how many sins occurred just yesterday. There's about 8 billion people on the planet. And let's say all, every person committed 13 sins yesterday. That would be 1 trillion sins. So let's narrow that down a little bit. Let's just think about this. We'll skip all the sins against the holy God and just think about sins that were committed against other human beings. Things that hurt or harmed or affected humans. And let's narrow it down even further. Let's just think about the sins committed by Christians or by those who would someday put their faith in Jesus. And we're still in the 10 to 100 billion range of sins. Now think about how many sins directly hurt someone during the previous hours, 24 hours. Think about all the instances of child abuse and sexual assault and murder that were committed. Think about how many sins were committed just yesterday that Jesus had to atone for on the cross. And now think of all the sins that came before yesterday and all the sins that were committed today and all the sins that are going to be committed before Jesus returns again. It would be more than any human mind is capable just to be aware of the horror of all those sins. And yet Jesus is not just asked to be aware of them. He's asked to pay the punishment and endure the wrath of God against every act of those sins. And what likely makes the situation even harder for Jesus is that it's his choice. No one, not even God the Father, is forcing him to undergo this. No, he's freely choosing to endure God's wrath. 
What makes it even worse than that is that he absolutely undeserving of such punishment. In Ephesians 2, 3, Paul reminds us that all humans are by nature creatures of wrath. We are all born sinners. And so we deserve to endure God's wrath for our sins. But Jesus is the only person who ever was born who did not sin. He's the only person born that does not deserve God's wrath. He's choosing to take it upon himself. And he's doing it for us. And why did he choose this path? Because it was the will of the Father. And let's look at the entire verse. Jesus says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. In Mark 6.10, Jesus had previously taught his disciples, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now in verse 36, we see Jesus praying that for himself. And what is, most, is the most difficult act of submission in history? The Father has loved the Son with perfect love for all eternity. And yet the Father is asking Jesus to endure the unendurable. No human suffering will ever match what Jesus had to face in enduring God's wrath. So why does Jesus do it? Why does he make the choice he does? He makes it because of love. As Colin Smith says, don't ever get the idea that God loves you because Christ died for you. No, it's the other way around. Christ died for you because God loved you. He loved you even when you were the object of his wrath. God so loved the objects of his wrath that he spent this wrath on himself at the cross. The outpouring of God's wrath was the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. And we see this love displayed in the next few verses, starting in verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So come away to, to read this section. It's to assume that Jesus asked Peter, James, and John to go along with him because he needed comfort or because he was lonely. And I know a lot of people read it this way, and that's the way I used to read it. But I now think that's a misreading of the text. But it's an understandable misreading. As Christians, we believe that Jesus was fully God and fully human. And when humans are going through trials like this, they often want somebody there for them to comfort them and to give them a sense of peace. And there would be nothing wrong if that's what Jesus was wanting. As, as Scripture tells us, we should weep with those who weep. We should be there when others are going through trials and temptations. But if we look closely at the text, I think we see that's not what's going on. If we look closely, it becomes clear that Jesus isn't looking to the disciples for comfort. First, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus had already said that they're going to betray him. He even says that the chief disciple, Peter, is going to betray him three times and all the other disciples are going to fall away. Now, he obviously knows this because he's God. But he likely also could have discerned this because he spent three years with these men. He knows their heart. He knows their character. He knows them better than they know himself. And he knows that they aren't the kind of men who can stand up when their life's on the line. So why would we think he would put his trust in these men at this time? He wouldn't. And he couldn't. Next, notice what Jesus says in verse 34 through 35. He tells Peter, James, and John to remain here and watch. 
Well, he goes a bit further away from them. He didn't tell them to pray with him. He didn't even tell them to pray for him. No, he went off to be with the only one he knew he could count on. God the Father. And our third piece of evidence is what Jesus said when he caught them sleeping. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, why weren't you there for me when I needed you? Here I am greatly distressed and troubled, and you're over here sleeping. Why weren't you at least praying for me? If that's what Jesus meant, that's what Jesus would have said. But he didn't say that. Instead, he says, could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus is telling them to watch and pray, not because he wants them to worry about him, but because he is worried about them. And think about that. Here Jesus is at the lowest point of his earthly life. He's only hours away from being tortured and killed. He's about to endure God's wrath on the cross. And yet two times during this night, he's so concerned about his friends that he goes and wakes them up and tells them to watch and pray for themselves that they may not fall into temptation. And when you recognize this point and how it reveals the heart of Jesus, it becomes even more remarkable and astonishingly beautiful. If Jesus can, at his lowest point of his life, be more concerned about his friends than himself, then how much more should we be concerned? The reality is that you and I will be tested. Jesus tells us in John 16, 33, in, the world, in this world, you will have tribulation. You're going to face trials, tribulation, and tests. Many of you may be even going through trials right now. And this passage in Mark should force us to ask, what can we do to pass such tests? This passage also gives us the answer. The passage shows what not to do. We don't want to fall spiritually asleep like the disciples did. But Jesus clearly tells us what we should do in verse 38. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And in this verse, Jesus gives us three things we must do. These three things are simple and maybe seem a little simplistic. Yet they were powerful and profound. First, we must be watchful. And last month I preached on Mark 13. And at the time, I looked at Jesus giving six similar commands in that text. Jesus said, see that no one leads you astray. Be on your guard. Be on your guard. Be on your guard. Keep awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. What it means to be on guard and to stay awake is to engage in the spiritual practice called watchfulness. And to be on guard, you not only have to be awake, but you must be alert and watching for danger. In that previous sermon, I summarized the concept of watchfulness, saying that staying awake and being on guard means guarding our hearts and observing our thoughts and behaviors to ensure that we are avoiding temptation and false teaching, and that we are staying close to Jesus and to God's word for the sake of ourselves and others. Staying awake and being on guard means guarding our hearts and observing our thoughts and behaviors to ensure that we are avoiding temptation and false teaching, and that we are staying close to Jesus for the sake of ourselves and others. That's what Jesus is doing in the garden. The main difference is he's staying close to God the Father. 
And there was never a time when Jesus had to undergo temptation like this. When he was tempted in the, by Satan in the wilderness, it was nothing compared to the temptation he's going through in the garden. So he knows he needs to guard his heart to keep from giving in and refusing to go to the cross where he'll endure God's wrath. Now within evangelical circles, the phrase guard your heart is used almost exclusively in romantic context. We often use it to mean to be careful about giving our heart away too soon or giving our heart away to somebody who's unworthy. And while that might be a useful application, to guard your heart means much more than that. It means protecting ourselves from giving in to temptation, any kind of temptations. And the primary way we do that is by following Jesus' second command. Jesus tells us we must pray. Jesus tells us to pray, and he showed us how to pray, but we still may be unclear on what exactly it is we are being asked. So let me provide a definition of prayer. And this is my own definition based on what I think we see in Scripture. Prayer is an encounter with God that is initiated by him through his word and that changes our heart as we humbly communicate and worship the Lord, confess our sins and transgressions, and ask him to fulfill both our needs and the desires of our heart. So let's look at that one more time. Prayer is an encounter with God that is initiated through, by God through God's word and that changes our hearts as we humbly communicate and worship God, confess our sins and transgressions to God, and ask God to fulfill both our needs and the desires of our hearts. So let's consider how this helps us to endure trials and how it helps us pass the test. First prayer is an encounter with God. When we are being tested, we need to recognize that God is with us and we can communicate with him directly. Prayer is also initiated by God. Have you ever found a child crying and you go up to him and tell him, talk to me, tell me what's going on? That's what God is doing. He tells us to pray in verse 38 in other parts of scripture. And Jesus has given us a command, talk to me, tell me what's going on. And when we pray, we need to do it in a sense of humbleness and worship, confessing our sins and transgressions. Now, Jesus never sinned, so he never had anything to confess. But we still see him here being humble and worshipful and approaching the Father in prayer. And finally, prayer is asking God to fulfill both our needs and our desires of our hearts. And prayer is not merely communicating with God. It's communicating in a particular way. And there are different things we do in prayer, but the main thing we do is we ask God for things. And the Westminster Catechism, which was written in the 1640s, begins its answer to the question, what is prayer? By stating, prayer is an offering up of ourselves and our desires unto God. And the biblical basis for this claim is found in Jesus' promise to us in Matthew 7, 7 through 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find Knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And as Proverbs 15, 8 tells, God is a generous giver, and he delights in answering the prayers of the upright. That sounds amazing, doesn't it? Well, there's one catch. When we ask God for things, the desires of our heart must be 
as the Westminster Catechism adds, for things agreeable to his will. If prayer is asking God for things agreeable to his will, then the primary purpose of prayer is to help us conform ourselves to God's will. This is essential, especially when we're going through trials. Our objective should be to conform our prayer life so that whatever it is we're asking for, we're asking with the same nine words of verse 36 in mind. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Third, Jesus reminds us that we must be aware of our weakness. And part of what it means to be watchful and to guard our hearts is to be watching out for threats to your faith and to be on the lookout for temptations that are going to lead you to sin. And that requires regularly observing our thoughts and behaviors. Self-examination in which we're looking for areas of our weakness and where we're defenseless. And that requires us to be honest with ourselves and recognize where we are weak and vulnerable. And we need to especially be aware of what Jerry Bridges calls respectable sins. We're often on the lookout for things that are obvious secular cultural sins, such as hate and lust and violence. But there are also subtle sins, like anger and gossip and discontentment that trip up unbelievers because these are sins we're going to make excuses for. And I recently observed an area of weakness in my own life. A couple of weeks ago, a sermon about Pastor Eric convicted me of some sin that was in my own life. And then I needed to repent, especially of the sin of pride, which had become deeply rooted in my life. I become aware of how often I feel morally superior and self-righteous. And this probably tends to become most obvious when I hear about the moral failings of other pastors. I see men who become disqualified for ministry because they commit adultery or because they steal money from the church or because they abuse alcohol or drugs or abuse members of their church. I hear stories about such men and my pride swells up and I say, as Peter does in verse 29, even though they fall away, I will not. My prideful heart says, if they were like me, those pastors would still have their jobs. They would still have their marriages. They would still have their reputation. And that those, the reality is that those pastors probably adore their jobs. They love their wives. And they care about their reputation as much as I do. But we share one thing in common. We weren't watchful. Like me, they weren't being honest about their weaknesses. Like me, they weren't scanning the horizon for sins. And they let pride slip in unnoticed. And as Proverbs 6.18 tells us, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. As Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And this is not an excuse to shrug and say, well, what can I do? I'm weak. No, it's a reminder that because we are weak, we need to cling to the one who is strong. Recognizing our weakness should make us cling desperately to Jesus. A few years ago, there was a video that was all over social media of a Florida man named Chris Gursky who went on a hang gliding trip to the Swiss mountains. And it was supposed to be a tandem flight where Gursky was supposed to be strapped in to an experienced pilot. But as soon as they took off and they were 4,000 feet in the air, Gursky realized he wasn't strapped in. And in the video, we see him clinging desperately to the pilot. He keeps grabbing at the pilot's leg, trying to get a better hold because he knows if he lets go, he's going to fall to his death. 
And while it only takes about two and a half minutes for the pilot to get him safely back on the ground, for Gursky, it felt like forever because he was scared and in pain. But he never stopped trying to get a better grip, to hold on just a little bit longer. That's how we must be, especially when we're going through trials. We have to cling to Jesus as if our life depended on it because our life does depend on it. We need to do whatever we can to hold on to God. We need to find ways to trust him more. We need to pray and to plead and to cry out for him, especially when he feels distant. We need to read his word and cling to his scriptures and his promises. And we need to be like Jacob, who is Genesis 32, 26 tells, wrestled with God all night and clung to him and said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. When we acknowledge our weakness, we are in the right mindset to follow the example of Jesus in Gethsemane. Acknowledging your weakness should motivate you to pour out your heart in honest and persistent prayer. Acknowledging your weakness should cause you to yield to God's purposes, even when you can't understand them. Acknowledging your weakness will force you to rely on God, who will sustain you through the darkness just as he did our Lord. No trial lasts forever. So take comfort in knowing that Jesus understands your suffering completely. He has walked that road before you. You can trust God's grace to strengthen you, just as Jesus trusted in the Father's grace to help him in his darkest hour. And Jesus gave us command, and he gave us a reason for that command. Watch and pray because you're weak. Because you're weak, you need to watch and pray. You need both the reason and the command. If you try to watch and pray without recognizing your weakness, you're going to try to do it on your own strength. If you recognize your weakness and don't watch and pray, well, you've identified the problem, but you haven't embraced the solution. Remember those weightlifters I mentioned at the beginning? We need to be like them. We need to stay persistent, trusting in the process and anticipating the results that are going to come. We must be persistent in our faith, trusting in God's wisdom and love. We endure the struggle, not because we enjoy the pain or because we enjoy the suffering, but because through it we are made stronger. Our faith is deepened. And we draw closer to God through this. In the end, we come to understand, as the Apostle Paul did, that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And just as the physical stress of weightlifting produces stronger bodies, the spiritual stress of life trials produces stronger faith. So apply the strategy Jesus gives you. Watch and pray and remember your weakness. And if you do that, you'll pass the test every time. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the precious words of your son that we find in Mark 14. Through this passage, Jesus has showed us how to endure times of trial and temptation. Lord, help us to be watchful, guarding our hearts and staying alert to temptation and falsehood. Give us discernment to recognize areas of spiritual weakness in our lives. May we cling to you when we feel our grasp slipping. 
Father, teach us to pray and help us to understand our weaknesses. Give us the courage to always say, yet not my will, but your will be done. Hold us fast when our faith is tested. And gracious God, for everyone in this room who is now facing trials that threaten to overwhelm them, grant them strength and endurance. Surround them with with brothers and sisters who will be with them and stay awake and watch with them in prayer. And help us to always remember how you are with us. We ask this in your son's holy name. Amen.